and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. We're working our way through uh, this wonderful chapter. And uh, uh, I, if you were as fortunate as, as, as I was to eat breakfast with Danny's class, um, I don't need lunch now, which is not good when a preacher isn't hungry. So if you get out late, it's Danny's fault there. Now, Danny's already told me he's going to sleep because he had a good breakfast. So, um, But uh, Romans chapter 8, I failed to look at the uh, uh, page of your pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, grab that one. we got some up here for you as well. With that said, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. Romans chapter 8, we want to begin in verse 18 and go down to verse 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemptions of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who believes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask the same thing every week trusting in your spirit and love that you would open our hearts we receive your word our mind that we'd understand it our eyes that would see your kingdom and glory our ears we would hear and heed your word our mouth we'd speak the truth of the gospel to ourselves to one another and to the lost world around us to our hands and our feet that we will go in obedience would you move in our midst not because we are worthy of it but because you are that great of a god and lord may i decrease so that you can increase in the name of your son we pray amen may you be seated A few weeks ago, I was uh, watching uh, a head coach of one of my favorite teams talk about a player they had signed during the offseason. And he said that uh, before the, you know, during the offseason, they, they did all their homework on this player. And they, they did all the studies, and they, they watched all the film, and they knew this is the guy for us. So, so they make the trade and all that sort of stuff. And then he said, but the minute we saw our player on the field, the minute we could really get a good look at him as our player, then I realized we had struck gold. I'll confess to you, I think Romans 8 has been that for me. Maybe not you, but, but for me it's certainly been that. Usually whenever we do a series, I sit down, think I have it all figured out, and then you start digging into the text, and you fall in love with it all, all over again. Let me remind you what it is that we have seen so far. This chapter is, is not about how one can be saved. Paul has, has already assumed you've been following along in Romans. So chapters 1 to 3, you're a sinner. Chapters 4 and 5, that though we are uh, sinners deserving the judgment of God, Christ comes to save us. Not because of anything good that we've done, but because God loves to transform sinners. 
And, and he does that through the finished work of Jesus. And then chapter six and seven, he talks about, okay, having embraced Christ, what does it look like to live uh, for Christ? And he says, be, be wary about two extremes, legalism, that is just keeping a bunch of rules over here, and a libertarianism that says you can do whatever you want, Jesus loves you, uh, uh, yada, yada, yada. You see, these are extremes here. You want to avoid them. What's the answer? What is it we're looking for? He says that the, the answer of the Christian life we want to pursue is a life uh, driven by the work of the spirits. And notice what he says here in this chapter is that the spirit declares us to be saints. There is now, therefore, no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. Sin enslaves you, but Christ has liberated you. You are no longer a sinner. You are a saint. And then he told us uh, after that, we saw last time that the spirit assures us we are sons. So whenever we are struggling with sin and doubt and fear and uncertainty, the spirit comes along and says, don't you remember the gospel? You're not the sinner. You've been made a saint. And don't you, don't you remember the gospel? You're not a slave to sin. You're a son of God. And what we see here this week is that right in the middle of this chapter, Paul points to the issue of, 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 of suffering and travails and grief and sorrow and the hardships of life, and he reminds us the same truth. Yes, we are saints. Yes, we are, we are sons, but we are also strong in Christ. Notice that what Paul does here is, is he doesn't answer the why of suffering. You know, he, he doesn't sit down and say, okay, here are five theses on why suffering exists before we can really talk. About it. He doesn't do any of that. He, he works sort of like the way my dad works. My dad's mechanic. He's a blue-collar guy, redneck dude, and you, you've met him. He's about this tall, and, and he, 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 he's worked hard his whole life. He's an excellent mechanic, and I really mean that. But you should watch him work. The thing about mechanics is nothing ever works. The tools you need for the job aren't the right tools. The, and, and, and instructions don't, don't exist for us men. So, so whenever he's got a project, right, he's going at it, he's going at it, going at it. You'll watch him, he'll get really frustrated with it. But in his frustration, he doesn't pause and say, I bet this thing was made in China. He doesn't do that. He doesn't sit there and say, you know, they make tools like they used to. He doesn't do that. You know what he does? He figures out the problem. He figures out the problem. Now, once he has solved the problem, he'll say, I knew it, this thing was made in China. But in the midst of the issue he is facing, he doesn't spend all of his time wondering why. He spends his time exploring what now. That's what Paul does here. Okay, here's the reality. We're all going to suffer. We're all going to have sorrow. We're all going to have moments of grief and difficulty and hardship and travails. We're all going to have that. What are we going to do about it? Paul gives us the answer is an obvious answer. What we need in those moments is faith. But what does that mean practically? What does it mean practically to live by faith? Now, now we know that faith is necessary. I don't know if you spend a lot of time in a hospital. You've probably uh, discovered, and those who do work in hospitals will tell you, that, that at a hospital, the patients who have a deep faith survive and do the best. Those who lack that sort of faith, they're not getting visited by spiritual counsel. They're not having family and friends and church members check in on them. They struggle mightily while in the hospital. So but what does that faith look like? Well, the first thing we see here is hope. Hope. 
Now, biblical hope is not a subjective emotional pick-me-up. It's more than that. Hope is rooted in an objective reality. We have hope as believers because of something that is real. The real here is that Jesus conquered the grave. God himself has put on flesh. This is what Christmas is all about. And, and he, he added to flesh. And with that came the, the travails of life and suffering. Well, what that meant is that Jesus walked through uh, our streets. He, he walked in our dust. He suffered the same nonsense we, we put up with. And he died as we will die. Yet he conquered the grave. The Christ who came is, Paul wants us to see here, is the Christ who will come. He who has conquered the grave will one day redeem the cosmos. This is good news. In fact, notice the strong language he has in verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, this makes sense only to the believer who is rooted in faith and lives with gospel hope. Can I show you why? This is a sort of hope that looks forward and not downward. It looks forward for what is to come, not downward as what is happening. Every time something bad happens in our life, the temptation is for us to wallow in our sufferings. I've hit an age now where maybe I'm just cranky. I've told you to become like my father. That I'm convinced some people enjoy suffering because they enjoy sympathy from others. You can spend your life looking down at your problems or you can look forward to what awaits us. Why did the car break down? God knows why. God knows we can't afford this. Cancer, again, God knows I can't live without my, my spouse. When we look down at our hurts, we, we, we spend all of our time meditating on our disappointments and our frustrations, and we take our eyes off of Jesus and honor our pain, we will find nothing but hopelessness, nothing but misery, nothing but deeper sorrow. But if our eyes are on Jesus, the one who put on flesh and conquered the grave and is coming again, we can persevere. You will feel most what you most focus on. You will feel most that which you focus the most on. I've told you all before that whenever I was a kid, my parents enrolled my brother and I into karate, mostly for disciplinary reasons, but nevertheless, I learned a few things in karate. And, and one of the things is we, we, we learned how to handle pain. Because if you know anything about karate is it hurts. You, you, you have some, some yellow belt uh, uh, hit you in the stomach, and that's painful. Right? That hurts. And so one of the things we, we did is we did breathing exercises. And it was more than like breathing, uh, you know, for the sake of breathing, though that is important. It was rather that in your breathing, you learn to focus on something else. See, we, we were wise enough to know that if all you did was say, hey, you hurt me. You hit me in the stomach. That's not fair. My feelings are hurt. I'm a millennial. I'm triggered. I'm calling mommy. Whatever it is, what it actually makes is the pain worse. But if we focus on something far greater, we could persevere. Paul commands us to meditate less on our sufferings and more on the glory that awaits us. It's all about perspective. Would you persevere through momentary sufferings in favor of eternal glory? Do you believe professional athletes regret the hours they spend in the gym, the, sweat, the, the, the gallons of sweat they lose when they are finally world champions? 
I doubt it. So too, if our eyes are on Christ and what awaits us in his kingdom, then I think the day will come. We'll say, you know what? All those things I complain about, looking back, not that big of a deal. So why don't we act like it now? So as we look forward instead of down, we must wait anxiously. And that's really what he does in verses 19 to 26. We just can't spend as much time on as I would like. But I remember, like, I've told this before, every Christmas, my brother, sister, and I, we, 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 would, we would try to do two things. One, we would try to wake up and catch Santa in the act. And, and the other thing is we would try to get up before mom and dad to open up the presents, pretend we went back to sleep, and then we'd wake up, and then we would act surprised of what all we got. I don't know if you did that or not. I'm not advocating it, kids, but, but that, that's what we, we would do. And I've told the story before that mom and dad, uh, my brother was the worst. Naturally, he's the middle kid. No one remembers him. And, and, but he, mom and dad had put a big old giant bell on our door. So that when, when we got up to go look, you know, sneak in at four o'clock in the morning, whatever it was, uh, the bell would ring and mom and dad would yell at us across the hall, go back to bed, boys. Right? Now, 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 kids do not want to get up early 364 days of the year. You can't drag them out of bed on a school morning, can you? Tomorrow morning, parents, you're going to go in there and your kids ain't going to go sleep. My dad's a morning person, bless his heart. And none of us in the house are. And I remember as a kid, if, if he was in charge of getting us up in the morning, the rare day he was off work, is he would bring a bucket of water and pour it on us. I'm not making that up. You, you think I was just, just making something up for, for an illustration? I am being serious. He would wake you up. He'd say, if you're not up in five minutes, I'm getting a bucket of water. And he'd do it. He would do it. Now, now, why is it that, that we don't want to get up for school and work, but we're, as kids in particular, we're dying to get up on Christmas? Because it is something we are waiting and longing for. It's desire of our heart. And the hard part is, is to wait with eagerness, eagerness and patience. We get the eager parts. It's the patient part that doesn't come uh, with, with such ease. In fact, notice that Paul uses the word eager, verse 19 and 23, and the word groan, verse 22, 23, and 26. What he's doing there is, is he's describing, yes, creation, creation subject to the fall. It is groaning. It is travailing. It is in pain as it's longing for final redemption when suffering and hardships are no more. But in that groaning, it is eagerly waits and it waits with patience. We too, Paul tells us, groan eagerly for our redemption. This world can be beautiful. It can be deadly. It can be both a blessing and a curse. It can be a place of joy and misery. But we groan in it because this world is fallen. And in that groaning, let us, along with creation, groan with great eagerness. Things are not as they ought to be. Things are not as they could be. Things are not as they should be. But praise the Lord, things are not as they one day will be. We can groan with eagerness. The hard part is waiting. To wait with eagerness is to wait with hope, is to have faith in the promise that God has given us. When our hope rooted in faith is that secure, we will not choose for ourselves anger, anxiety, frustration, or despair. We will choose Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, hope. Well, if the first answer to how does we persevere amid such sorrow and grief and hardship and suffering is hope, the second strength, strength. 
Faith gives us the hope of, of what awaits us, sure, but it is strength to persevere through our suffering. Here's something Paul wants you to know, and he made this clear in the first three chapters. You and I are weak. You and I are weak. I think most of us in our lives as athletes, we've, we've had that moment where we went against that team, we went up against that player, and we realized all these hours of learning this craft of a game, I'm never going to be that guy. Have you, have you ever gone to watch a professional game up close live? Uh, my son and I were season tickets to the Lexington SC. Uh, we, we absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. But, uh, you know, I'm coaching these middle school and high school kids. They're getting better and better. Really proud of them. And then you go see professionals do it. You're like, you guys stand no chance. That's what I wanted to say to it, right? These guys are good. They are good at what they do. You are at best mediocre. That's, that's good because I'm looking at myself like I could have never have done anything. How fast they run, how their, 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 their legs are, are the size of a politician's ego. It's massive, right? They're just massive. And, and, and it is incredible. And that's when you realize, you know what? In fact, I am weak. I'm not as good as I thought I was. I can't make it through the day. And we know this deep down inside of us. We Americans don't want to admit it. But when the stress is overwhelming and you lash out your coworkers, why do you do that? It's because you're weak. When you break down after more bad news, why do you do that? It's because you're weak. When you allow bitterness to consume your soul, why do you do that? Because you're weak. And it isn't until you come face to face with the reality that you are weak can you ever get stronger. Here's an even harsher reality. You will never make yourself strong. That's the lie of sports. If I push myself hard enough, if I practice hard enough, if I lift weights, get faster, improve my shot, improve my throw, get stronger, then I'll succeed. But when it comes to life, the harsh reality is not just that you are weak, but you yourself will never make yourself strong enough. We are far too weak for that. What we need is something more. If you don't believe me, try it. Choose religion. Walk the aisle, get wet, say the prayers, burn the incense, make the confessions, go to seminary, wear the robes, learn the language, read the mystics, do all of it. And you will still lose your temper. You will still have relationships that are broken and you don't know why. You will still cry at night when no one seems to know about it. You won't be able to sit alone with your thoughts. Why? Because despite all the things you've done, you're weak. What we need is not religion, but a redeemer. A redeemer whose name is Jesus Christ. And it is the Spirit who shows us that redeemer. So then how does the Spirit strengthen us here in verses 26 to 30? I want to highlight two. Your notes may have three, but I took one out for the sake of time. But I think I fixed it. So there's two I want to highlight here. The first is that the Spirit strengthens us uh, by praying for us. The Spirit prays for us, verses 26 and 27. Notice what Paul says there. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Notice, in the middle of our weakness, amid our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We talked about that word. 
And he who searches hearts knows that what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for saints according to the will of God. Now, I'm sure you're introverts. Uh, this doesn't apply to you. But us extroverts, how rare is it that you are left speechless all the time? You have someone in your life who just will not stop talking? Like a mother-in-law? You know what I'm talking about, right? Is it someone who just will not stop talking? They get on the phone, keep talking. You, 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 you afraid to start a conversation with them because you'd like to eat dinner within the next three days, right? They, they just keep talking. But even them, even them, there are moments of pain, moments of sorrow, moments of deep groanings where we are left speechless. What do you do in those moments? Do you choose despair? Or do you find strength in the Spirit who is praying and interceding on your behalf? I think that's worth meditating on this morning. In those deep moments of doubt and despair, God speaks on your behalf. The Spirit intercedes on your behalf. And there sitting at the right hand of the throne of the Father is the man, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. I want you to pause about that. What other religion can claim this? What other texts will say this? It's interesting, isn't it, that when he speaks of intercession there in verse 27, the Paul would understand that from the Old Testament perspective. Many of the prophets uh, did intercession. Moses, Daniel, Hezekiah, Nehemiah, just to name a few. Now, I would love to have those guys interceding for me. I love knowing that many of you are praying for me and others. Man, I consider many of you a prayer warriors, but you and I, we, we can't compare to the Holy Spirit himself, can we? Here he is, lifting you up in prayer, especially when you don't know what to say. Well, that's got to make you strong. Secondly, not only does the Spirit pray for us, but the Spirit assures us amid our difficult moments. Verse 28 is the most often quoted verse in this entire chapter. You probably haven't memorized, even though you've never tried to memorize it. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. We know it well. It has been the source of great comfort and hope for many, and rightly so. But do not miss the context. Paul wants us to know that even through our pain, God is still on His throne. Your anger will not tell you that. Your pain will not tell you that. Your heartache will not tell you that. Only the Spirit will tell you that. The Spirit sees what the sufferer cannot. And so the Spirit comes alongside and He is interceding on our behalf. And then He says, oh, by the way, the sinner who's now a saint. By the way, the slave who's now a son. By the way, the weak who is now strong. Let me remind you, not only am I interceding on your behalf, but let me assure you, God works everything out for His glory and goodness. You may not see it. You may not understand it. You may not like the way things have worked out. But rest assured that God will work it all out in the end. I think that video was quite helpful for us that Don played. Here is a man who's having to say, I am having to trust God with my wife and children. We men, we don't like that. We think we can, we can take care of our wife and children better than God can if we're being honest with ourselves. And we may say otherwise, but when you're in Iraq during the Kuwait attack, well, it's really hard to put that into, into practice, isn't it? 
So what does the Spirit see? What is it that the Spirit shows us that, that, that gives us the assurance that God will work everything out? Well, there it is in verse 29. You were foreknown as was your suffering. As was your suffering. And nothing has ever happened to us that God is up on his throne like, well, I do not know what to do now. Did not see that one coming. There's no curveballs in God's kingdom. He's well aware of, of, of everything, our sufferings and, and our hardships. We were foreknown. Our sufferings are foreknown. Notice also verse 29, we were predestined as was our suffering. And this momentary affliction will con, uh, 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 conform us to be uh, into the image of God. Read it there again. Verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Why? Right. We can talk about the big theological words there, but what's the purpose of foreknowledge and predestination? It is that even through our suffering, we would be conformed to the image of God. You see? You see, that is that your suffering is not without merit or purpose. You may not see it. You may not understand it. You may not like it. But God is on his throne, working all things out for his good and kingdom and glory. And those whom he... Foreknew those whom he predestined. Verse 30, he called, and he not only called, but he justified. He not only justified, but he will glorify. Now, those are all big theological words, but what we need to see here is that the Spirit, amid our sorrow, amid our suffering, is assuring us that God is on his throne, and you will be made strong, though you are weak. Isn't that good news? We don't have to understand it all. But the Spirit does show us it is true. I meant to show the clip, and I, I didn't take the time to do that, but one of my favorite moments in sports history took place in the 1992 Summer Olympics. A British runner by the name of Derek Redman was a track and field star. And he had worked really hard just to qualify for the Olympics, but he didn't just want to qualify, he wanted to win a medal for his country. So he worked really hard. And the first races came, and he, he qualified for the final race, the race that would win him a medal. He got on the block, gun went off, took off running. He was doing good. Full of confidence and belief in himself, he was doing really good. You can watch the race on, online. It's available to you. And it's a 400-meter run, which I used to run when I did track, and, and it's 200 meters, about halfway through. He did the thing that every fan knows exactly what happens. He's in mid-stride and that hand goes right back to his hamstring and he stops. Oh no, his race is over with. His immediate reaction was to sit down and cry. His whole life had come to this single moment. He would run a 400 meters in under a minute. I ran it under a minute. This dude probably could run it 10 seconds if I ran it in a minute. And in that one moment... The moment he waited for, everything had been ruined. Everyone else finished the race. They got their medals and all that sort of stuff. But he decided, you know what? I will finish the race. I didn't come this far just to sit down. So he got up and he started to run with that hamstring. You remember what happened at the last 100 meters? His dad, who was up in the stands, saw what had happened to his son. And he started to make his way down the stands. And he had to push by the security guards. And he got onto the track with his son, put his arm around his son, put his son's arm around him, and helped him together cross the finish line. The thing about track is it was one of the most lonely sports you can have. 
Your performance is your performance. Your team isn't going to bail you out. But in this moment of great need, the assurance of a father's love helped him make it to the finish line. It became a great picture of what the father who has sent his son and has given us his spirit does for us amid our own sorrow. Let the Holy Spirit be your strength. Life doesn't have to make sense. I understand life is difficult. But please know, you have a hope in Christ risen from the dead. And you have a strength that only God himself can give you when you need it the most. In fact, we sing this in our Christmas hymns, don't we? One of my favorite Christmas hymns is O Holy Night. And often, each year, I read these hymns because you get familiar with them, you don't think much about them, but you read them, they're quite profound. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining until He appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Isn't this really what Christmas is all about? The Christ has entered into our sorrows. The Christ has entered into this broken world. And if the world gave Christ a crown of thorns, why do we expect a better roses from it? But as we carry our thrones, as we carry our cross, rest assured, he who has turned sinners and the saints, slaves and the sons, will make the weak strong. So I don't know what your story is here this morning. I don't know what brings you here this morning. I'm, I'm going to ask that you would come in repentance. Maybe you've never embraced Christ. And so this talk of strength is foreign to you. This talk of sonship is foreign to you. This talk of sainthood is foreign to you. I'm going to ask that you would come. Lay all your burdens, all your sin, all your guilt, and all your shame at the cross and be free. Maybe you're here and you're going through a hard time right now. Uh, let me just beg of you today. Would you come and find the strength that is available to you only in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would be so nice as to...